0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look inside the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week, Joe Biden halts support for Saudi Arabia's offensive in Yemen. A war which has created humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. Britain says it wants a peaceful end to the war but won't stop selling weapons used in the conflict.
1: It really is impossible to pretend to be the humanitarian honest broker on one side while also simultaneously being the biggest arms dealer.
0: We ask how the UK and US ended up in such different positions just weeks after a new administration took office in Washington. Do we have enough battle-ready soldiers? Calls for greater clarity ahead of the integrated review. Plus, as the UK reveals more about its cyber offensive against the Islamic State group, what about
2: the morality of waging war from behind a computer screen? There very much is a risk that the UK could be pushed into targeting non-military infrastructure. And I think this is where we'd like to see some more public discussion.
0: As Donald Trump is put on trial in the US Senate over last month's violent insurrection at the Capitol, his successor has a
3: message for the world. America is back. Diplomacy is back at the centre of our foreign policy. As I said in my inaugural address, we will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again, not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's. And that's already
0: seen big changes from
3: the stance taken under the Trump
0: administration not least an end to US support for Saudi Arabia's military offensive in Yemen. President Biden called it a humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. But where does that leave the UK still selling arms to the Saudis for use in the Yemen offensive? Paul Osborne has more.
4: According to the United Nations, Yemen is home to the world's worst humanitarian crisis. More than 24 million people, 80% of the country's population, need help. Among them, more than 12 million children. The roots of this conflict go back to 2014, when Houthi rebels, backed by Iran, took control of Yemen's capital, Sanaa. soon after Saudi Arabia and their regional allies began airstrikes. They also bought weapons worth billions from the US and UK. But now America's stance is changing.
3: We're also stepping up our diplomacy to end the war in Yemen, a war which has created humanitarian and strategic catastrophe.
4: That means a halt to US arms sales and other support. The White House has already halted the sale of precision-guided munitions worth half a billion dollars. And America's decision raises questions of Westminster too. I note the US decision to pause its arms exports whilst it reviews its policy towards Yemen. Foreign Office Minister James Cleverley. The government takes its own export responsibilities extremely seriously and assesses all export licences in accordance with strict licensing criteria. But, he said, the UK makes its own decisions about arms exports, and just because the US is halting sales, it doesn't mean Britain will follow suit. Former Defence Minister Tobias Elwood, who chairs the Commons Defence Committee, thinks that may be the wrong approach.
1: Can I encourage the UK to fully align ourselves with our closest security ally, to end similar arms exports connected to the war and reverse the cuts to our overseas aid budget? And, as the UN Security Council penholder on Yemen... Could I recommend firstly the UK offers to host a UN summit that looks at political options for peace and secondly the UK is willing to commit British forces to any UN stabilization effort that may be required once a political settlement is reached.
4: Ministers say they want to use Britain's chairmanship of the UN Security Council to renew a push for peace in Yemen. But the Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy says you can't be peacemaker and arms dealer at the same time.
0: We are not a bystander to this conflict. UK arms training and technical support sustains the war in Yemen and the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. More than 80% of Saudi's arms imports come from the US and the UK. So the US's decision to end all support for offensive operations, including relevant arms sales, is welcome, but it leaves the UK dangerously out of step with our allies and increasingly isolated.
4: The UK previously suspended arms sales after a court case, but later resumed them. Both Britain and the US have provided technical support too, servicing planes and weapons, training pilots, helping in target selection. Critics say Saudi Arabia has effectively contracted out parts of the war in Yemen. Alan Smith is the SNP's spokesman on the Middle East.
1: It really is impossible to pretend to be the humanitarian honest broker on one side while also simultaneously being the biggest arms dealer
4: to the conflict. We are tackling the symptoms of a problem
1: that the UK has in no small part
4: helped create. But James Cleverly says it's a complex conflict with Iran backing the Houthi rebels as part of its efforts to destabilise the whole region. We cannot, we must not ignore the Houthi's actions. These include the use of children and sexual violence as tools of war, the persecution of religious minorities and attacks upon civilians. On 30th of December, the Houthi attacked Aden Airport, killing 27 civilians and injuring over 100 others. We must address the Houthi sense of impunity to make the peace process meaningful. If the UK continues to back the Saudi military operation, it's an early break with the Biden administration. But what the White House hasn't been able to explain yet is how it hopes to end the conflict that's brought Yemen to the brink.
0: Paul Osborne with that report. So the US and UK appear to be on different paths when it comes to Yemen. Does that matter? Well, let's talk to Dr Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Karen, UK appears, for now at least, determined to maintain some level of support for Saudi Arabia over Yemen. Is that sustainable if the US takes a different view?
5: It's good that the US has stopped selling offensive uh, support. They still are going to give Saudi Arabia defensive weapons to protect against missiles, etc., from Iran. They have appointed a very experienced diplomat, Tim Lenderking, who was the former number two at the Saudi Arabia embassy, to be a special envoy. And I suspect that will generate other countries to have envoys and work together on a peace process. But I don't think that the British weapons are decisive, actually. The Saudis are doing what they want to do, and they will likely to continue activity unless uh, everyone can lean on them in a much more significant way. So I don't think... You know, the British weapons sales to Saudi are what is actually causing this huge humanitarian disaster. and so No,
0: but it's caused a lot of controversy in the UK, hasn't it?
5: I mean, it would be better if they stopped, but I don't think it's as big of a deal as people are making out to be. How
0: much damage do you think that's going to do to Britain's reputation being associated with this humanitarian crisis?
5: I can't imagine that they won't be supportive of ending this war. I mean, it's, you know, it's very much in line with British values to end this humanitarian disaster. So... Uh, I'm sure it's just a matter of time when when the British policy will be tweaked to a degree.
0: Mm. Also with me is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clarke. Michael, it hasn't taken very long for this sort of gap to open up between Boris Johnson's government and Joe Biden's White House, has it? Do you think it will be closed, as Karen thinks?
6: Yes, uh, I, I do. I mean, I don't think that Britain and America are, are on different roads here. I think we're on the same road, but at different points on the road. And so as the Biden administration sort of firms up its attitude toward Yemen, I'd be very surprised if Britain doesn't go along with that. But we, of course, I mean, what Britain is trying to do, as is America, is, is balance its support for Saudi Arabia to show that it is, that we are a reliable reliable partner to an ally as well as trying to do something about this war which has spun out of control, which the Saudis have, have lost grip on. Um, and it's not only their problem of course Iran is is the other real participant in this war and so somehow that has to be reconciled in a, a rejuvenated peace process but I'm pretty sure that we'll see that in uh, the near future.
0: Over the criticism that the government's had uh, over its sales of weapons it says uh, it's one of the world's most robust arms export regimes it has that how credible do you think a defence that is um, saying we sell you the weapons and ask you not to fire them at civilians?
6: Yes well I mean government are correct when we say when they say that we have one of the strongest control regimes in the world but that is on paper it's a very strong regime and in terms of procedures it's a very strong regime but the reality of it is that when you sell weapons that you're dependent upon uh, the guarantees that somebody else gives you the end user certificates that they won't be used for a different purpose and if they are used for a different purpose you've then got to decide well are you then going to end supplies of other things as a punishment or are you just going to go along with it or turn the other way and one of the problems problem is that Weapon sales are always in- inherently political. You can't just rely on a procedure and a series of ticked boxes on paperwork to get it right. Somebody has to make a political decision that this arms sale is, is relevant and it's useful and it's we get something out of it and this one has actually gone beyond the pale and we can't keep on doing it. And you can't avoid those decisions.
0: Dr Karen von Hilber, you say that the UK is on a different stage on that road over Yemen. What do you think the next move will be? Do you think it will be to stop weapon sales that can be used in Yemen?
5: I would imagine that there's a fairly active debate. Uh, They're getting pressure from MPs, conservative MPs like Tobias Elwood, and I'm sure others will be under enormous pressure from the humanitarian community to make some changes. So I would imagine it's a matter of time.
0: Well, America's new position on Yemen is part of a wider reappraisal of how the United States engages with the world. President Biden set out plans for a wide-ranging review.
3: I'm announcing additional steps to course correct our foreign policy and better unite our democratic values with our diplomatic leadership. To begin, Defense Secretary Austin will be leading a global posture review of our forces so that our military footprint is appropriately aligned with our foreign policy and national security priorities. That means a halt to
0: planned troop withdrawals from Germany and Mr. Biden warned he'll take a tougher stance than his
3: predecessor. American leadership, must meet this new moment of advancing authoritarianism, including the growing ambitions of China to rival the United States and the determination of Russia to damage and disrupt our democracy.
0: Well, Dr. Karen von Hippel and Professor Michael Clark are both still with me. Um, Karen, many of the people around Donald Trump said China should be America's top priority, and that seems still to be the case, even if the tone is shifting.
5: China is, is the biggest threat and competitor but also you know, needs to be a partner so it's not just a black and white situation. And they will have a more nuanced policy on China than Trump did, and they'll have a more consistent policy on China, and they will work with allies on China. Can I just add one additional thing about uh, um, Austin, Secretary of Defense Austin? He's also doing an internal review to weed out white supremacists in the military, because I think that was one of the things that they learned uh, with these attacks on the Capitol was that many of them had military training. So there's an internal review and an external review, and I think we'll see a very different Pentagon at the end of this.
0: Indeed, it's going to be interesting to see what comes of that review. Um, Biden is the first US president since the fall of the Soviet Union who hasn't spoken about resetting relations with Moscow, instead apparently aiming to deter Russia's interference around the world. Professor Michael Clark.
6: The Biden administration um, wants to be, uh, as with China, wants to be consistent with Russia. The, the Trump administration was pretty inconsistent in the sense that the the Pentagon uh, took a fairly robust view uh, about Moscow's behavior around the world, but the White House didn't seem to want to back it up, and it wasn't clear how the administration as a whole was re- was reacting to to Moscow and President Putin's face when he was at a joint uh, press conference with President Trump, um, and President Trump said, "Well, there's no evidence that uh, Russia um, interfered with our election in 2016," and, and Putin's face, as it were, there was a, a few Botox twitches, and it was an absolute picture. I mean, I was, he managed to smile a little bit and tried to suppress it. It was just wonderful. Um, That, I think, is, is at an end now, and the Biden administration is determined to try to be consistent, and we'll see how that goes. But the appointments procedure so far, the team that Biden is putting together looks as it were, a, a much more expert, much more experienced, and I think they will be consistent. And the uh, the the deal to replace the nuclear deal, I think, is a good first step.
0: Mm, Karen, um, presumably those concerns about Russia are in some way connected to the decision to halt the redeployment of American personnel currently in Germany, do you think?
5: Trump's foreign policy was a disaster in so many ways, but I would say especially with Russia. Now, Russia is not the threat that China is, but Russia does interfere, pokes its finger everywhere. It, you know, c- carries out cyber attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure overseas. It interferes in elections. So I think basically Biden's sending a strong message that, you know, those days are over. And, you know, we're going to we're gonna have a very different relationship. We're happy to work with you, for example, on, on renewing the START treaty uh, for another five years, but we will push back very hard where we need to. Now, what does that mean in practice? It's not entirely clear what they can do. I think Trump left a bit of a mess behind, and, you know, they're really uncovering a lot of it right now, and there were so few staff involved in so many of the decisions because he didn't appoint people. That it's just going to take some time to figure out what happened. So there'll be lots of forensics going on uh, across the U.S. government.
0: Do you think the U.S. can recover from this mess, as you describe, that's being left behind?
5: It's going to be very difficult, and it's going to be very difficult for allies in particular, because even those who are very happy that that America's back, that America supports partnerships and all sorts of alliances, etc., you know, four years can go by very quickly, and you know, Trump got 11 million more votes in 2020 than he did even in 2016. So. Trumpism, the threat of Trumpism is still out there. And, you know, allies should rightly say to America, we want to work with you, but we need a plan B in case you bring another guy in like that and maybe someone who's even more effective. Trump actually wasn't very effective. And you could have someone who's far more destructive than Trump. So I can see allies being very concerned about that. And I've actually heard that from friends who work for leaders in, in, you know, in close allies of the U.S.
0: Yeah. What about the U.K.? Where does it leave the U.K. as an ally?
5: I think the U.K. should be making the same exact point as other countries will quietly to the U.S. We want to work with you. We're happy you're back. But we need to develop our own resiliency in a number of areas. We may need to work with other partners with or without you uh, in case another trump comes back and if we're making deals at the global level what kind of insurance can we have that those deals can carry on if if you, you know if another american leader overturns them
0: dr karen von hippel thank you very much for joining us today this is, it is it Does the Army have enough battle-ready soldiers? The Daily Mail's published details of what it says is an internal MOD briefing document revealing one in four infantry troops are not fully deployable. The paper said that of the just under 15,000 troops needed for infantry battalions, a little over 11,000 are ready for frontline duties. It's an issue highlighted in the Commons this week by the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healey. The minister
1: responded on social media to that reference. Report to confirm that he said it is not secret uh, and it is a, he quote, routine update. So I want to see Parliament use this Armed Forces Bill to mandate ministers to report to Parliament each year on the fighting strength of our armed forces.
0: Professor Michael Clarke is still with me. Uh, Michael, the MOD responded saying it had the numbers and talent required to protect the UK. Should we be worried if one in four infantry soldiers aren't fully deployable?
6: In the long term, we should. In the short term, probably not, because the army is retrenching. It's going through a reorganisation process, which is all part, of, of course, of the integrated review. And it is back under the microscope. It's, it's astonishing that, that the army is still, as it were, being, being thrown into the mix, even as the review is nearly in completion. Um, and so when we see that review, we'll see what they've got in mind. But undoubtedly there's a big series of questions which John Healy was referring to there about you know how much armour do, do we have, how much mobility, how much concentration um, and what should the ultimate numbers be. But the army hasn't got a recruitment problem, but it does have a problem in terms of its reorientation towards whatever it's going to be in the 20, late 2020s, early 2030s.
0: Yes, and as you say, it is under the microscope, the army, uh, with the inter Review and next month we're going to find out whether these rumours of potential cuts to the army are true.
6: Mm, apparently, I've been holding my breath now for three or four months. I'm not sure, sure how much longer I can hold it. Um, I, I mean, Ben Wallace indicated this week that he thought uh, it would be announced in March, not too far into March, so maybe two or three weeks' time. I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't slip again.
0: Really. Wow.
6: Well, I wouldn't be surprised, that's all. It slips so often and we've now got the local elections to think about in May and the period of Perda, which starts pretty soon. So if it doesn't come out in early March, then I think it might slip, you know, another month or six weeks after that. Um, But we'll see. Ben Wallace has been wrong twice before when he indicated when it was going to come out. So I hope he's third time lucky this time.
0: Now, this week, we learned new details about previously secret cyber operations carried out by the UK against the Islamic State Group. General Sir Patrick Sanders, commander of strategic commands, told a Sky News podcast Britain used offensive cyber capabilities to interfere with IS internal communications.
1: We wanted to ensure that when they tried to coordinate attacks on our forces, their devices didn't work, that they couldn't trust the orders that were coming to them from their seniors. They either couldn't trust the messages that were coming to them or they weren't working.
0: Well, in the same podcast, the director of GCHQ, Jeremy Fleming, revealed the UK deployed cyber technologies to disrupt IS drones as well.
1: We prevented the, their propaganda, you know, both through physical actions on the battlefield, but also remotely getting to their
6: servers, getting to the places that they stored their material. We piloted some really early technologies to uh, disrupt Daesh's use of some pretty basic drone technology, but which was causing us uh, a problem.
0: The cyber offensive against IS is the only one known to have been carried out so far by the UK. But General Sir Patrick Sanders says if the UK's enemies are prepared to go online to achieve their ends, we have to go online to beat them. In some
1: respects, the most important, the most relevant uh, use of cyberspace is that the real power is in influence and not in sabotage. And so what you're seeing are our adversaries, our rivals, exploiting the tools that are meant to make for a more utopian society, so things like social media, against us, fueling conspiracy theories and really sowing division and tearing the fabric of society apart. And you you could go so far and describe it as almost fueling a civil war inside some of these societies.
0: But just because you can do something, does it mean you should? What are the ethical and moral considerations when you can wage war on a foreign power from a computer in the UK? Amy Erton co-chairs the Offensive Cyber Working Group and is a visiting researcher at NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence. She told me a lot of those ethical issues remain unresolved.
2: Quite a lot of the discussion around offensive cyber capabilities across the academic community in the UK have focused on where the line will be drawn by the national cyber force and whether they will outline exactly how and where they will deploy offensive cyber capabilities, especially when we're operating below the threshold of armed conflict, or if that scope will, will widen, potentially to go to non-military targets. So this is why I think a lot of the UK community are calling for a wider discussion on this subject, both for greater public confidence measures, but also in terms of highlighting a clear process for this activity to take place. So w- when we're talking about offensive cyber capabilities, where's
0: the current thinking in terms of where you draw the line and what is the law that covers it at the moment?
2: Well, offensive cyber capabilities is a very broad term that effectively, according to the Ministry of Defence, just refers to power projection through military objectives, through cyberspace. But it could be at a level of armed conflict, where you are aiming to disrupt adversary operations, um, in which case you are covered by traditional, uh, by the law of conflict, the traditional principles of necessity, proportionality and legality. It does become a lot more complicated when you look at sub warfare, the grey area, in which case it's not quite sure how international law applies. There is uncertainty about precisely when offensive cyber capabilities reach a level that we would consider to be the use of force um, so that's very open at the moment. That's very uncertain.
0: And one of the big ethical issues as you alluded to before is whether you solely focus on, on defence and security infrastructure in a defensive capability, or or is it okay, for example, to target the power grid in an enemy state?
2: Exactly. And this is where it does become extremely uncertain and questionable as to when you can justify this activity, specifically in cyberspace where things can move extremely quickly um, and outside visible discussion, if you want to, for example. Uh, prevent an attack, uh, take down uh, an ISIS propaganda network, for example, it is a lot easier to defend to the public. But in terms of actually targeting civilian infrastructure and doing things that could impact human life, uh, that becomes incredibly controversial. It's quite hard to justify whether that is proportional or necessary.
0: Yes, the thought of hospitals, computer systems, air traffic control being targeted How great is the risk of that becoming something that is quite a regular occurrence in future?
2: Well, currently, the UK has stated quite clearly that they will abide by international law when it comes to offensive cyber operations, outlining that some adversaries may not take the same approach. There very much is a risk that the UK could be pushed into targeting non-military infrastructure, uh, which may include, for example, electricity grids, critical infrastructure. And I think this is where we'd like to see some more public discussion, uh, some more transparency from the National Cyber Force about how they see themselves and how they are positioning themselves ethically.
0: Countries like the UK claim to have the moral high ground. How hard is that going to be, do you think, in the world of offensive cyber operations?
2: I think it's very early to tell. I think at the moment, the conversation around offensive cyber operations is pretty immature. The UK wouldn't want to reveal too much of its capabilities and and powers in this space. That does mean there isn't a very informed debate. It's quite hard to tell where the ethical boundaries are. Um, in terms of where the UK is and where they're willing to go in offensive cyber operations. That conversation is starting, but right now, looking at the national cyber force, it's not clear what their ethical standpoint is. You say there needs to be more debate about this. Do you think it can keep up with the advancing technology? I think it needs to. I think for the UK to be able to compete in this space, to be able to effectively defend themselves, we need to have this informed discussion about what the technology is, what it means, what it can do, and how the UK should be using it. And this, of course, must take place in the context of how our allies are using it and how we see adversaries trying to use technologies against us. The UK has to be able to set their own ethical boundaries, but also be able to defend itself effectively. And this is where the difficulty lies, where your adversary is willing to use capabilities that perhaps don't meet the ethical requirements of your population and
0: your department. Amy Erton speaking to me a little earlier. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, how do you establish what counts as a just cyber war?
6: Mm, Yes, I don't suppose St Augustine had cyber war in mind when he established the principles of just war, but they're still more or less the same, which is that there, there has to be a threat, which is a very big threat. It has to be something imminent. There has to be no other way of countering it and you have to counter it in ways that are proportionate. Those are the basic principles. It's very difficult to do that when you're thinking about um, cyber attacks. And in reality, what, as Amy was saying, really what we've fallen back on is, is deterrence logic. Just as with nuclear weapons and deterrence logic is based on two fundamental ideas. One is that, yes, we admit we are vulnerable. You know, we know we're vulnerable to nuclear weapons or cyber attack. And so we're going to make you vulnerable as well. So that's the first principle. And the second principle is to say, and these weapons, whether they're nuclear or cyber, we don't know how bad they could be. We just don't know how far up the escalation ladder they must go. And so if you're going to use a cyber threat against us, we will use a cyber threat against you. Now, that is morally very difficult territory to inhabit. But I have to say, I mean, that is where we are. We used to uh, not deny that we had a cyber offensive capability, but we just didn't talk about it very much. But since 2015, we have used awareness of our cyber capability to start talking in these deterrent terms. Indeed, politicians have stood up in the Commons and said, you know, They will pay a price if they attack us um, with uh, cyber weapons in relation to Russia. So we're in that territory now. It's deterrent thinking and it's very difficult to um, reconcile that with classic just war assumptions.
0: Mm. Uh, the Defence Secretary warned this week the internet had turbo-boosted terrorist groups and said there was a growing threat of chemical and biological attacks. Didn't we already know that?
6: Yes, I think he was trying to build up support, I guess, for the integrated review and some of the things that will be said in that. I mean, I think what he's emphasising, I mean, rightly enough, is that we are in the era of hybrid warfare, so that the the threats to our integrity and to our society don't just come through conventional military threats, but they come through cyber, they come through the possibility of biological biological threats, which in the era of Covid, we can now all see the potential for that.
0: Now, through the week, protests have continued against the military coup in Myanmar, but there seems little prospect the country's military will listen to opposition either inside or outside the country. Former Chief of the Defence Staff Lord Richards met the Burmese General who led the coup. The UK prides itself on the leadership training it offers to militaries around the world. But do we teach morality as well?
6: Certainly, you know, if they go to Sandhurst or our staff colleges, that's the central tenet of the ethos that drives the British Army. And I know from experience, it is imparted pretty forcefully to cadets and young officers. So I think they go back probably with all the right training and with all the right instincts, but temptation comes to the fore. They suddenly realise that within their own country, often not well run, they suddenly can become very influential and they can't resist the temptation, sadly.
0: Uh, Professor Michael Clarke, are potentially embarrassing if we're giving elite military leadership skills to people who go home and then overturn civilian governments?
6: Yeah, as uh, Lord Richard said, it's always a danger. I mean, the thinking behind the the training, and I think it's very good thinking, is that professional soldiers are democratic soldiers are more likely to be democratic soldiers you certainly can't have a democratized military unless it's a very professional military and the fact is there are 27 million people in the world who are wearing military uniform most of them are really hopeless at what they do i mean not just not very good but just hopeless Of, of the 27 million people in uniform around the world you'd have to say that there's only probably three or four million of them who are competent at what they do so teaching professionalization is very important. But it doesn't get you out of the political dilemma that, of course, the military often thinks that they are more important and efficient in a in a broken country and they can take over. What we know from event after event for the last hundred years is that the military can take over power, but then they can't use it. The military is hopeless at running countries. The military, as the military, can seize power, but they can't then wield it.
0: Mm. Is there anyone you can name who's been trained at Sandhurst who's gone on to do something Went back home, which was not what the British military would have wanted. Oh
6: well, uh, there, there are a, a number of uh, a Saudi uh, trainees um, who are now <laughs> propping up a very autocratic government. And General uh, Musharraf, of course, in Pakistan, was one of the more eminent uh, graduates from the Royal College of Defence Studies, um, who became a, a, a very straightforward dictator. <laughs> um, so, so, um, you know, th- there are fifty, there are fifty-five leaders in the world at the moment who were educated in Britain in various ways, 55 leaders in 200 countries. That's a pretty good average, but of course it's not going to work in the way we would like in every case.
0: Well, it's good to talk to you today. Thank you, Professor Michael Clarke, and thanks to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SitRep. and at bfbs.com slash rep, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
6: In a brand new original BFBS podcast. Tonight, the battle has been
1: joined. Decision makers. The Gulf War was very much the first televised war. Military commanders. There we were witnessing that. And ordinary soldiers,
0: sailors and
6: airmen. At night, you could hear the firing from the American Navy using their cruise missiles and the battleship, shelling the Iraqi forces ashore. Hear the story. The 1991 Gulf War.
0: The conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact when you're trying to maintain infection control. It's really, really challenging.
1: Told by those who were there. Where well, I found it most terrifying when we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, I might not come back. Granby, the storm in the desert,
5: wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.